Welcome to the Wisdom Journey with Stephen Davey. Stephen is the president of Wisdom International. He's teaching through the Bible with a lesson each weekday. Today he continues in the Gospels looking at the end of Jesus' earthly life. You see a sad portrait of Jesus as he's led to the place of crucifixion. It calls for your adoration and your gratitude for the one who suffered all this for you. This lesson is called the Via Dolorosa. Today we begin to follow the footsteps of Jesus down the Via Dolorosa. That's the way of suffering, the path from Pilate's palace to Calvary. Calvary is the Latin term for skull, and this place is also called Golgotha. That's the Aramaic term for skull. This was the place of death by crucifixion. Now, the events here are both horrifying and healing. This is where we're shown that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal, everlasting life. Well, the Roman governor, Pilate, failed to release Jesus. He knew he should have. He caved in to the Jewish leaders who threatened to report him to Caesar as a traitor, and then Pilate turned Jesus over for crucifixion. Pilate had hoped to appease the Lord's accusers by having him scourged rather than killed. Scourging was standard preparation for crucifixion. In fact, during the days of Christ, this rather horrible beating was commonly referred to as the halfway death. Most of its victims would slip into a state of shock. Some died before they ever reached the cross. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, wrote about a man who was scourged until his bones were literally laid open. Now, I don't want to be you know, too graphic just for the sake of sensationalism, but, but I also don't want to sanitize this scene either. I want us to see this practice for what it was. Before scourging, the victim would be stripped of his clothing. He was then bound to a stone post with his hands tied above him. Professional torturers who administered the beatings were known as lictors, which is where we get our expression, you you took a licking or you took your licks. Typically, there were two of them alternating their blows. Their weapon was called a flagellum. That was a whip-like instrument with a short wooden handle and long leather straps. The straps were braided in varying lengths, and stones and pieces of typically sheep bones or even metal were sewn at intervals into the braids. Several years ago, a detailed report on the medical aspects of of the scourging and crucifixion of Jesus was published by the Journal of the American Medical Association. It explained that as the Roman soldiers struck the victim's back with full force, those stones would cause deep contusions. The leather thongs and and sheep bones would cut into the skin and underlying tissues. And as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear the skeletal muscles and and, and leave uh, quivering ribbons of, of bleeding flesh. Pain. 
and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. And the extent of blood loss may may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. The average victim would endure the incredible pain of this flogging and then be crucified, but Jesus endured even more suffering from these Roman soldiers who were, you know, no doubt demonically inspired to mock and insult this, you know, this supposed king of the Jews. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 28 now describes what they do next. The soldiers put a scarlet robe on him, that's the color of royalty, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Now, that would have driven these 6 to 12-inch thorns into his head. Let me tell you, beloved, there's no mention of of Jesus pulling that crown of thorns off or or even letting his, his royal robe slip away from his bleeding uh, shoulders. He is standing here quietly as a lamb, the lamb, silent before his slaughterers. At this point, he would, he would have been an unrecognizable mass of swollen, bruised, and bleeding flesh. Verse 31 says, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Now, it was the custom of this day for the condemned man to be taken, sort of like in a procession, down the path known as the path of suffering. The victim was paraded through the streets of the city, and not only to display him to the crowds and, and, and announce his crime, but also to make a statement that you don't mess around with the Roman Empire. And in Jesus' case, you don't upset the traditions of the Jewish nation. Well, over in John's gospel account, we're told in chapter 19 here and verse 16, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. Now, I need to pull over for a moment here and correct this mental picture that most of us have. Jesus was actually carrying the cross beam. A Roman cross designed for crucifixion weighed around 300 pounds. The victim didn't drag a 300-pound cross half a mile and then up a hill, especially victims suffering incredible blood loss from flogging. We know from both Jewish and Roman historians that the vertical piece of the cross was already installed in the ground. It was called the stipe. It was permanently anchored at the site of execution. By the way, we also know from history that thousands of people were crucified during Jesus' lifetime. This was Rome's favorite way to put someone to death. Crucifixion was originally designed by the Persians, but it was perfected, so to speak, by the Romans for maximum suffering and a slow death. So you, you need to picture Jesus carrying his cross beam. That's the horizontal bar called the patibulum. When the victim arrived at the crucifixion site, the patibulum would be placed on the ground. The condemned man would lie down on the ground on his back. His hands would be nailed to the cross beam. And then the soldiers would stand him up on his feet and raise his arms. That cross beam would be raised up 
onto the upright beam and attached by means of what's known as a, a mortise and tenon joint. That is, the cross beam had a hole in the center of it so that it slipped down onto the vertical beam. Now, there's another mental picture that needs correcting here. This wasn't a tall T-shaped cross, you know, some 10 feet uh, stretching into the sky there. The, the, the cross Jesus was on looked more like a capital T, and it stood only about six feet high. This allowed people to curse the victim to his face, spit at him, mock him. Many victims would be attacked and eaten by wild animals if they hung on the cross through the night. Now, typically the image people have is, you know, Jesus is dragging a 10-foot cross down cobbled streets until he falls down. No, he's carrying the cross beam, not the entire cross. There's not one verse, by the way, that says Jesus even fell or stumbled. Now, it's obvious from his beating and the extended blood loss, he's not going to be able to continue carrying this cross beam, which itself would have weighed around 100 pounds. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record what happens next. If we go back to Mark chapter 15, we read here in verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Cyrene is in northern Africa, and there was a large Jewish population there. Simon more than likely had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And the fact that he's identified here as the father of Alexander and Rufus indicates that his two sons were known to the early church. In fact, Rufus is quite possibly the believer Paul mentions in Romans chapter 16 and verse 13 uh, it's it's also very possible that, that this encounter here with Jesus will lead Simon of Cyrene to place his faith in Christ. He's, he's walking up this hill carrying a blood-soaked crossbeam, and then he's going to listen as the Lamb of God will eventually cry out, It is finished. Well, Luke chapter 23 adds that as Jesus makes his way across this this uh, Via Dolorosa, this path of suffering, Uh, women are weeping for him as described here in verse 27. Jesus responds in verse 28 by saying, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Jesus then refers to the coming destruction of Jerusalem, the scattering of the Jewish nation. By the way, that scattering has lasted, beloved, to this very day. Well, with that, we're out of time for today. Until our next wisdom journey, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. That was Stephen Davey. This is The Wisdom Journey, and today's lesson is called The Via Dolorosa. Stephen is the president of Wisdom International, the ministry that produces these lessons. If you have a comment, a question, or would like more information, you can send us an email if you address it to info at wisdomonline.org. 
We have a special place on our website where Stephen answers questions that have come in from listeners like you. If you come across a passage that's confusing or encounter a teaching that you want to have clarified, Stephen would like to help you. I think you might enjoy going to the website and looking at what other people have asked and reading Stephen's answers. It might be that someone had the exact same question you have. But anytime you have a question regarding the Bible or the Christian faith, send that question to info at wisdomonline.org. Once Stephen has answered it, we'll add it to the collection. And of course, you can use that email address if you have a question or comment about our ministry as well. We'd love to hear your wisdom story and learn how this series is helping you. If you'd like to speak with us, our phone number is 866-48-BIBLE or 866-482-4253. We're in the office on weekdays, and we'd be very glad to speak with you. Please join us next time on this wisdom journey.